Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSwift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube. Truth and Rhythm can also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from iTunes and other leading providers. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Golfi, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guide of funk. You got to get your copy if you don't have it yet over at Amazon. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. My guest today is Eric Dial. That is spelled E-R-I-Q-U-E, Eric. He's a writer, producer, keyboard player, and DJ who contributed to some of the 1980s of funk dance act Von Mason and Crew's Biggest Hits, and also toured with legendary poet, singer, Gil Scott Heron. Dow co-wrote and played on Mason's Top 40 track, You Can Do It, and years later collaborated on a Von project under the name Rays, which created a house dance classic in the Top 20 R&B cut called Break for Love. Coming from a musical family with a father who played with Benny Goodman, Dow was mentored by the late Jerome Bell of Van McCoy fame and John C. Freeman, co-writer of the main ingredient soul classic, I Just Don't Want to Be Lonely. Among other, the other artists Dow has worked with are Imagination, Martha Wash, Loose Ends, The Adventures of Stevie V, Robin S, Byron Stingley, and Marshall Jefferson, who some have called the godfather of house music. In addition, Dow has moved in some very funky and freaky circles. He became extended family to P-Funk based on his sister being a super fan and her husband working as one of Parliament Funkadog sound engineers. And in the process of being wooed by Rick James's camp, he was afforded an all access pass to their world. It's time to get Eric out from behind the consoles and keyboards to dial up some insider funk and dance experiences from both sides of the Atlantic. So with all that, Eric, turning to you, how are you? Hey, how are you? Good to be talking to somebody at home and a Laker fan. Hey, got to represent. Oh, yeah. So here we go from um, Ziski Studios in London. I'm all yours. Yeah, so uh, is that a famous studio? Is it... Uh, a lot of folks have used it, or what's what's the backstory on that studio? It's just where I'm coming out of in West London. You know, my, my um section, my click, you know, my man Exano Base, whatever, is our studio. So, you know, just where we are. It is different places or whatever. It's not, yeah. it's not like Abbey Road or nothing. It's not, <laughs> cool. So you ready to uh, take on some questions and tell us some stories? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Okay, so Eric, just uh, get us going by telling us a little bit of, you know, your your um, childhood growing up. You came from the musical family, and your your dad was a player. So talk about that and how you ended up getting into music. Okay, I guess I was um, born into it with my father, because he was a music teacher for the DC public schools, and um, so music has already been always been around, you know, from the beginning, some sort of way. I guess it was just that, and um, my grandmother, she used to like to hum and you know music. And she used to say that my father became a musician or something like that because she would always be humming and singing when he was in her stomach. Mm -hmm. She used to say because she used to be into bebop jazz. My grandmother, because at that time that's what new whatever. 
hip thing, so she'd be humming or whatever. And that's what she used to say why he became a musician, because she was always singing or doing something when she was carrying him. Hmm. But yeah, so music has been there. And um, my father would play with the Motown acts, whatever, at the Howard Theater. He was one of the members of the Howard Theater house band. So that means uh, the Motown, different people would come through there. So he'd play with them, the Sammy Davises, the um, Red Fox and stuff. My father would play with, that was his generation, sort of legends, Sarah Vaughn and people like that, Temptations. But he wouldn't go and tour though. He wanted to keep the, um, the job as a music teacher, public school system. He didn't want to really leave uh, me and my mother as such, you know, go on the road for six months, don't come back, whatever. So he just didn't want to do that. So he figured a way that he could play and still be there. So that's what he used to do. Never went anywhere. Just was in Washington for like 60 years. But everyone that comes through though, he would play with. And him and Benny Goodwin was friends in this band he was in. This is Howell University, Jazz Warriors or something, back in the day. So it went from there, and I liked um, popular music or whatever. First music to sort of have a good influence on me was like funk, whatever, you know. First 45s that I bought was James Brown, Hot Pants, and Gil Scott Heron, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. So what was that, 1972? Around then, or yeah. so, so whatever, but yeah. So it started there. And I didn't know, like for years, years, years later, I would meet James Brown, have a little conversation with him, and then I would work for Gil Scott Heron. Anyway, I was into the bands like everybody else was into, you know, Earth and Fires and the, you know, the Barcades and, you know, there's so many can't really put one name, but there were so many. And then, um, with the funk, I was into the funk from Get Up For The Downstroke. So that was kind of a few years before it really broke. Even back to uh, America Eats Is Young, yeah, I was into Loose Booty. I like that funkadelic song from then. So then, you know, over the years and everything, my sister Candy, She's been friends with George, like, all her life. So I started to want to go and be around that because she's always going and knows, you know, her friends and everything. You know, she took me to meet Bootsy. So I wanted to start to see some of that, whatever. And I started, I played clarinet for eight years, but I got really bored with that clarinet. My father just wanted me to sort of play that. And I was like, Wow, you know, I played well. I played for eight years, but I got very disinterested in the music. So, were, were, from, were you mostly just playing, um, you know, band kind of stuff on the clarinet, or I was in the school band. Yeah, the school band. You yeah. know, so you know they play, you know, what they play on um, yeah. certain standards and certain whatever. And it, it was, I mean, that was all right. That was good. It wasn't exciting to me though, or at least playing that clarinet. Drum. What instrument did your father play? Saxophone. So that was his. His name was Donald V. Dial. Okay, he played saxophone. That was his instrument that he, you know, got paid and got on stage playing. But um, he's a music teacher, so you know, he gives you that basic uh, 
keyboard, woodwinds, whatever, as a music teacher would in the school, junior high school. Do you, do you remember what uh, sax? Because I played alto sax myself, and my son now plays alto sax. Played alto, tenor and alto. That's right. what he played. And a little bit of a flute, but those are the ones that he brought and play. Uh -huh. Yeah, absolutely. Whatever horn that was, I guess Charlie Park used to use because he'd come over my father's, come over my house and and borrow it. So I might, might be a tenor. Anyway, I got more, you know, into that type of music. And my uncle Ron, Uncle Ron Sutton. He's a sports director for um, WHUR, Howard University Radio. And this was like back in the 70s time. I would go with him when he used to do his um, sports show. And I would wander around the, uh, the radio station and go and find where the promos are, where there's rolling rows of records. And I, I would just get some, you know, that they had seven, eight, nine promo copies of everything, more than enough to go around. Scoring. So I was getting like that. And my uncle came and he said, you know what? You got to stop getting all this bubblegum music and you have to get take some of these records that I'm giving you to listen to. Boy, I'm not going to let you get no more of that music, right? Because it used to be bubblegum music, like I guess, you know, Earth, stuff like that. He gave me these albums. He said, look, he gave me this one album. It was Quincy Jones, Body Heat. He gave me some other albums, um, Eric Dolphy. And then he gave me Herbie Hancock album. And then he gave me Return to Forever album. And he said, you have to listen to that. So I listened to it. And I actually liked that because it had like a electronics keyboard. Yeah, you know, weather report. And he gave me some other things. He was more like straight ahead. I, I really gravitated to the electronic part. I went right into it. Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters, um, Diodato. You know, Chicory and Santana as all that. I went way into that, the young teen. So I was starting to get as much as that as I was to Earth, Flame, Fire and the, you know, Funkadelic um, and all that. Really was into the fusion, you know, acoustic stuff like that. But it was still some songs on the radio. I like James Brown, you know, There It Is, and, um, you know, on the Good Foot, whoever. It was songs coming out, and that's what I would do. I would just go home, leave a piano at home, and I would, between the radio and this and that, and I would, those songs that I like, I would figure those songs out. I'd play those songs, whatever, you no know, beat sheets, whatever, just, you know, play it out in my version, whatever. And it went from there to um, having friends, childhood friends, who end up being band members in um, the Midnight Band. This Gil Scott Heron and Midnight Band. So I had a couple of friends who was a drummer, a guy named Kenny Powell and Ed Brady, RIP the guitar player. We were childhood friends. So they came in that band. So when they would come to town in DC, whatever, I'd always go and see them. And that spiraled into um me meeting Gil and just being around. When they was coming around. But uh, Eric, what year do you think it was when you first met Gil? 1979, 80. Yeah. So right after he had had a big hit with Angel Dust, kind of in that frame. Yep, it was right in that time. It was right between that 
And the next album that they had out was going to call 1980. I think the album was called yeah. 1980. It was right in that time. Mm-hmm. And the Wax Museum, he done, he done this live thing called Black Wax, this film thing. Uh, it just played for the Wax Museum in D.C. So that was 1982. So yeah, anytime from there to there for the next several eight years. And he just said to me one day, um, I noticed you like in communication with the band and you know, when we were around and this and that. And he said, he was going to go to Europe to do a tour and he would need some help if I was interested. I had to get my passport to him right away so he can give it to, I guess, immigrations and whatever you have to do. And that's how it really started. I was around a lot before that, though, higher than July Tour, Stevie Wonder, and other dates and so many places. But they were my mates. So if I was already there, so um, it just turned into a, a job, right? The most important job I probably definitely had in the music business, you know what I mean? His personal assistant and you know, road manager. I didn't know, but um, I feel that way now. But I might have gone hmm, way up, but for my sister, though, the Palmer Funkadelic stuff, that was around 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 about the same time as well. How did your sister first uh, meet the Funk Mob or George or any of those people? Well, I was with um in Buffalo, in Buffalo, and and with Bob Bishop. Bob worked for them. She met Bob, so basically, I went from there, and I was from that's been forty years. They're married now, but basically still been together all those years. I've been around with them those years. The people that I know, they're not around. The Boogies, you know, he's not around. Or Ray Davis, mm-hmm. I don't see Ray Thomas that much. I see a few of them. So these are the people that I got to come and know, coming to my sister's place, sitting there, whatever, and I'm with them. The Boogie, me and Boogie was probably the tightest because he was short, whatever. And, um, I wasn't that tall, whatever. And he's kidding around with me, whatever, whatever. But um, he would be the one that look after, look out for me. And I'm going to them shows. And I'm going to come backstage. I'm just he's the one. You know, get your little ass back here. She doing? And I'm like, there I am. So therefore, I went unnoticed for many, many years. George never even knew who I was. Really good until 2014. Hmm. I was. I was in a black ground. You got to remember, there's like about 20 people in a band, 25 people in a band. They friends with that man. It's easily like 50, 60 people around. Anytime. Do you remember some of the specific uh, shows that you maybe were backstage or around back, you know, in the day? Washington was a big P Funk um, base, the Capitol Center. They'd be there multiple times, 21,000 seater. And Shows over here. I've seen most of the shows over here in the last several years. But this is in, in DC. Were you uh, at the um, Motor Booty show? Yeah, I saw that one. That's one when they was dancing underwater. Yeah, yeah I saw that Yeah, that was good. I saw Mothership. So I saw you know that era, that time. But I had to kind of like really who had to. It almost not big myself, but I had to bug her all the time. But she was like, you know, she was Bob, and Bob was the guy mixing the sound at the time. Bob is the one who mixed, Bob Bishop mixed the uh, the sound for that Houston, Texas concert, they say, is 
supposed to be the most one of the better better concerts. Yeah. And you know, you got all those band, all twenty five people and singing and this and that and that. He, he he was the first black guy to mix stadiums and coliseums and that in the United States. Doing those festivals and stuff for George and some of the recording United Sound. So Bob, I was always with Bob, and Bob would keep me next to him, whatever. Bob is right there. I'm in the console with him. I remember one time in London. Hmm, yeah. George had invited more or less anybody who's and who to come on stage or do a number with him or something, right? It was this place called the Ilford Island. I mean, like Jamiroquai, like Josh Stone, like Omar, like whoever, whoever, uh, Mr. Paris, whatever. And they all done, you know, something with him or whatever. Bob mixed that show. You know, George, anytime, you know, can call upon a whole lot of people. So I see some people this time, see some people there. Speaking of name, Barry. Barry used to be out there. And I heard somebody talk about um, Archie Ivy. I knew Archie and Ramon, Ramon Sproul, RIP. He was another one that looked after me, whatever. Was kind of coaching me a little bit when I was trying to write these songs or trying to, you know, actually do it. You know what I mean? Because I was so close to it that I wanted to do it. I mean, I know kind of how, you know, at least go in the right direction. You know what I mean? So when I wrote that song, You Can Do It for Vaughn Mason, that was a direct, um, influence of One Nation Under Groove and Michael Henderson's wide receiver baseline. I sort of like interpreted them. Those are the two, that baseline, that you can do it baseline. So that was funk. And when I did that for Ramon, Ramon said, oh, okay, now you trying to get funky on me. So I said, okay, so I just did that. And that tune caused, um, Rick James' brother, Leroy Johnson, he wanted that song for the Stone City Band. I didn't know anything about anything. That's the first professional song I had written. I had done songs. Before. How old did you say? I don't know. Twenties, um, like that. Yep. Yeah, I was just sort of starting. So, um, I stayed with Devon Mason crew, whatever you know. Because I mean, I. I that's what I'd been with, so you know. But that was he offered me like you know. He said you get fifty percent publishing and you half of this and this and that. And he was like whatever. So whatever would have happened with that, if I would have done that, whatever would have happened with it, wouldn't have been too bad. Because that was for the Stone City Band's first album, so you know. But I was happy for that done, and me and him stayed really friends, and he understood and everything like that. And we was like pretty much was stayed linked from then. Leroy Johnson, he's come to London and seen me before. So he allowed me to be right next to everything in the Stone City, like everything. You know, I've sat next to Mary Danger over there because he was his manager and his legal, whatever, attorney, whatever. So he ran everything. So he, and you know, I was around and saw, saw a lot. So I got to see a couple different types of folk. Like the king of punk funk, you know what I mean? It's funk, but it's just slightly different than P-Funk. But it's about that funky, the way he's different style, you know what I mean? It's nothing like P-Funk, but the close whatever people that can kind of be around that might be Cameo, Rick James. You know, there's a couple of little names you can name, right? So 
he's one of those. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I saw Rick James in 81 at the Forum in Los Angeles, and it was a heck of a show. I mean, he put on a great show then, and he had the big joint on stage. And, uh, you know, it wasn't P-Funk, but it was pretty damn good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He gives good shows. I remember. I remember he was at the Capitol Center. And he was talking about he was going to do a movie or whatever. Because him and Prince had to, had to sort of, you know, the competitive edge on each other, you know, competitive. So it was right at that time when Purple Rain and things like that jumped off. And then um, didn't hear about it. But his shows, record, you know. Back then, it wasn't any sequencing and all this, you know, certain technology that you had, you know. Snow City Bang was just that tight. So I was like, Thoroughly impressed. So I got to be around that a lot. It was another thing called a DC Throwdown Tour, Unity Tour. All of all those. You know, when it came around DC and place I wanted to be at, so I was there to see it. And you know, I guess you see and you learn. I, I looked at it as like, you know, learning, seeing it firsthand. You know, so I got to be around a lot to want to be that way. And you know. Having a sister who just take you to meet Boosty, just take you to meet him up close and personal in his room, just you, him, and she. Well, I was like, wow, because that was when um, I think people were doing concert at Capitol Center. So they stayed at this hotel in DC with Ohio University campus. Now, I'll never forget that. We just put, put the bus down there and went down there, and she didn't. Just gonna see somebody, whatever. So, knocked on a hotel door. Boots opened the door. Walked in there. So I was already kind of just, you know, I didn't know how to act really. I just kind of like, okay. And then we talked to him for a little bit, whatever. And then out of the, out of the bathroom, like five minutes later, Sly Stone came out. So I was like, really like, you know. And Candy always been like that, you know. That's how I get that star book because you know, Pete Funk and this and her and her and them are good friends. Her and Frankie and Gary Stide and whatever. Everybody not me my sister. So it was just like Eric. Was was Bootsy in full Bootsy like regalia, you know, his outfit in the hotel? No. He wasn't looking like that. No. He wasn't looking all, you know, like like thing. He looked cool all the time though, but no, he didn't have he didn't have that on. That's what I mean. He was like, you know, his hotel room. It wasn't even after the shows. It could have been possibly after the show, you might have caught him like that, but it wasn't even like a show yet, though. So, you know, they were just um, chilling. And I talked to Slash Stone, you know, and you know but I didn't expect to see any of them, but uh definitely expect to see somebody else. Right after that, so I was there for a while, and I left. Then after that, I was really more into the music. But the other people, like you know, the Trevay uh, Davises and different people around them, Overton Lloyd, he's one of the artists that drew the um, Aqua Boogie cover. And he came over to this house, and we was hanging out, and he was scribbling and doing something like that. And then before he left, he gave me this thing, and it was me, sort of sitting. You know, sitting in the room somewhere with this sort of, you know, his style of art, like in a pencil sort of thing. And I had it for like 10, 10 to 15 years, and then I lost it, whatever. I know that'd be worth something. 
So he used to be around. He was a nice, he was a real laid back, quiet kind of guy, you know. He come around there a few times. But yeah, Jerome Braley, he came down there. That was like when they had that album, when he had his album out, I think it was called Mutiny on the Mama Ship. He came and brought us one of those albums. He brought it from, from Cleveland, Richmond. So I remember hearing that album right from the click, whatever. He brought it, brought it over to our, to our spot. So it was people like that I got to see, and you know, uh, Joe Johnson. He was the keyboard player with Boosie. He was playing George sometimes with Joe, Frankie Wadi. Yeah, I think I seen them. I think I did. When Boosie came over here a couple of times, I did see some of them because, you know, people change and whatever. Just like Gary, my brother Cooper said, he was always with Boosie. So, you know, it's. Everybody's doing their thing, hard to keep up. But um, those are people that I knew. Yeah. So that's impressive that you got to meet all these guys. Is there anything in particular that pops out of your mind that any of them, you know, had personality-wise or that um, any of them make any jokes with you or do you get to see any of them singing or doing something interesting? They all were characters or whatever. I mean, sometimes they was on joke time and, you know, downtime when they were there, you know. So, yeah, like I said, Boogie used to tease me most most of the time. But what you're the last doing here, or, you know, those things like that. I wasn't taken um, serious or whatever or nothing like that because I was just um, my sister's little brother or whatever, you know. They couldn't know. Um, I didn't have anything. I wasn't, you know, smoking anything. I wasn't, you know, girl as such or whatever. So I wasn't particularly, something, you know, I was, but I was there though. I was, I was the other brother that was there or whatever. And um, did, did you know? Did you notice a lot of drugs going on though? Because I mean, even they'll tell you that they were doing a lot of stuff. You know, I didn't see anything unusual. But see, basically, I'm, I'm just, you know, there. I'm not going on back in rooms or whatever my sister's place. That's out in the front, whatever needs to be there. So me, I can't say that. So see, whatever was happening, it didn't even flaunt in my face. I can't say that, you know. So, you know, moderate thing, people drinking, you know what I mean? But I didn't see anything strange. That was strange enough enough for me at that time anyway. So I didn't see anything over the top. But they always had their stories. They'd be laughing about, you know what I mean, when they're out and, you know, stuff going on, you know, things like that. All depends on who comes down there. But it's just different people. I've been Bootsy's came down there once or twice. Usually the crew. Usually like a boogie. And sometimes Mike would be there. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was the actual shows that I've, see more of the stuff on that plan how it switches just from just being like full on in another sort of um level you know what i mean yeah they're playing they're different people tell me a little bit more about uh gil scott heron what was he like uh, as a person as a guy uh, we know he was a, a huge talent but what perspective did you get of him 
Gil was a genius to me. I'm saying I got to be around Gil a lot. Okay, this time he was even living in D.C. when I started to work with him. That's where he was based at. Gil was very eccentric, whatever, and Gil was very caring. And Gil had a lot of side, a lot of sides to him. Okay, but he was always going to be straight down the line, and he's going to say whatever it is he's going to say, whatever. Okay, and sometimes you might not have understood it or liked it, and sometimes you might have, but usually all the time later, you would understand it, and then you would know why. If that makes sense to you. He was, he was, he was good. I'm saying, I remember times when we, I know we were going out doing stuff, and he was like, Well, you know, I, I ain't even getting paid on these few gigs whatever, you know? I'm just making sure y'all getting paid. It's like that, when you're the band leader or whatever, you gotta pay for everything, everything, blah, blah, blah. So, so he was good like that. And uh, he was warm. But obviously Gil had his arrogance to him as well because he's a genius and like, like all superstar type people have a degree of ego or this fluctuation of an alter ego, you know? That depends on the territory, whatever you get, you know, it happens. But he was very grounded and he had his demons and issues like what everybody has. But when he went onto the stage, I never seen a bad show. Hundreds, I've never seen a bad show, okay? Despite whatever was going on or whatever he does whatever i never seen a bad show and we talking about like you know about two hours and a half hours straight and Gil likes to talk a lot so in between the songs yes. it's another thing okay so therefore he remembers all the words to his songs plus the extra stuff that he makes up spontaneously in between the songs so to me that has to be like genius because he remembers his songs. To remember a song like that, it's and you got all, all your songs are like that. So it's almost like having a a storage, you know, thing right here in the mind for the amount of words, letters, and everything. So I said it's genius in the books. He was in my studio in my house in D.C. working on what was going to be the book that he wrote. On the last holiday, that was about um, making Martin Luther King's birthday a holiday and everything. I was with Gil at them times. I remember standing on the Capitol steps when they were doing that lobby thing. Looked up the Capitol steps, there's like 125,000 people at, at the place. And top of the steps, there's Gil, Gladys Knight, Jesse Jackson, Stevie, and they're lobbying about doing this holiday. That must have been 1980. One perhaps, and then about five years later, six years later, Dr. Holiday came around. That Holiday in July tour was about that, and Gil got that tour because um, Bob Marley couldn't do it because he got ill at that point. Mm. That tour was supposed to have been Stevie Wonder and Bob Marley. Bob, got sick and 
you know, couldn't do it and everything. And um, then we got in contact with Gil to ask him that he fill in for a couple of dates here and there, you know, just whatever. And he did. And then one day turned to two, two into three, and five, seven. Stevie just said, told her, once she's coming, this is, you know, finish this tour, do the tour. And that's how that came about. But that was 90 days, the Hotter Than July tour. I didn't see it about 10, 12 of those days, but that's how that came about. I, I saw that show, uh, that tour at the Forum in Los Angeles, but I don't think Gil was on that that one. You know, that's what I'm saying. It was something he went on, because but yeah. by, by the time it ended, he was on all of them. It started out, it was just supposed to be a thinning thing. And they had one thing they had at the Capitol Center in Washington. It was a United Negro College Fund event or whatever. Everybody was there, it seemed like. Shaka Khan, you know, Stevie, Chris Blow, all these Commodores to do this um, thing for the, um, for the charity. And I remember I was sitting down and um, this guy sat next to me, whatever, quite closely, I would add, you know? And um, I wasn't also aware of how, you know, things are, whatever. I was still kind of green. I just started working for Gil stage manager that I get. And um the guy that I want to go out and have a glass of wine or something in his car or something like that. That sort of um dressed me a little bit, right? So I just got up I just got up and walked away though. I didn't say anything with it. And then people came to me later and said, oh, you know who that guy was? Why oh, why just talking to that guy? I said Really talked to him. Who was that guy? It was Ron Wood, the Rolling Stone. Uh -huh. I didn't know. I, mean, I didn't, didn't, whatever. So, you know, I used to run into people like that. But then, if I start working, whatever, then I got, it was all right. Because I was, I was around a lot of people working for Gil. And here in London, it's uh, Artists Against Apartheid. On that one event, uh, I think it was Sting, Boy George, Sade, all these people on one Elvis Costello on this one one um, event. So do with them and do what you have to do. So um it just became just the norm after that, you know what I mean? Just but you have to grow into it. Because I just got put into it. You were playing keys or programming keys with Gil or what were you doing exactly? I was Gil's road manager and his personal assistant. So a lot of times when I'm going out on the road, he's not even there when I'm going out. I'm taking the band out. I have to get the hotels. I got to get the transportation. I got to get the cabs. I have to get to the sound check, to the hotel, food, and all that stuff. And he comes usually about, there's been times that he's turned up five minutes before it's time for the gig. He doesn't travel with us all the time. He make take a later flight or come a couple of days. So that's what I've done. And then I get the money, whatever, and who needs to what or what, what does the girl want me to do, whatever. And that type of stuff I did for Gil. I used to go back then. We used to be Western Union back in times. Basically, like, yep, go to Western Union, get this deposit or so, so go pick this up, go. So now I go do them, and then come back to um uh, to the apartment, whatever, and et cetera. 
that's the kind of things that I did. Didn't play. Through, but through, I did play one time. What year was that? That was like 1985, 1995, 1985, 1990. Yeah. Were you still in contact with him when he passed away? Yeah, I was still all right with Gil until the last. I mean, even it was even deeper than that because I had um and I had an apartment in DC, whatever. And Gil was living there. Okay. He wanted to live there with us, so he was there for like two, three years. Yeah. Then I think his, that's when he got locked up. So even if I wasn't working with Gil, although I was working for a little bit, I've just been around him probably more, unless you were somebody who was in the band, he was keeping you from 1985, right up until, you know, 2009, 10. I was always around Gil. Did did you um, know how how deep he was getting, you know, with his demons? Uh, and did well, I, I mean, did everything. you think? I knew everything. Yeah, I knew everything. And I I was intimidated sometimes a little bit by Gil because Gil can kind of be that way with his powerful personality. So with me, I wasn't going to be um, saying like something like that. You know, sometimes you're not even officially in a band until you get fired one time. Okay? So I wasn't in a rush to have that, but yeah, you ain't, you're not officially into the band until you'll fire you a couple of times. Mm -hmm. so I wasn't in a rush to get fired at any time. So I wasn't really going to, you know. But yeah, I, I, I saw, yeah, but I mean, you know, sometimes you have to just see and don't see, you know what I mean? And I'm there with him and he's in there writing his books and he's, you know, his papers everywhere and, you know, his piano's over there and, and you know, Chinese food something over there that he hasn't eaten too much of. And he'll just be um, doing his thing. Sometimes it's a typewriter, man. It's like, honestly, he's on a type, type, typing thing. So that's what I, I was around and I'd be coming in from, getting some deposits or something that um, I have to do. Go get the, we need a van to go to do this thing down in Richmond. So, you know, that's what I mainly did and was on the road. You, you know, I, I had Brian Jackson on this show a few months ago. And, um, you know, he had gone a long period of time where he didn't see Gil. And then when he did see him, it was kind of shocking to him because he wasn't, seeing it as it happened like you did. So um, I guess, you know, it was really unexpected for him, but um, yeah, it's just a shame that it ended up that way. Um, I got to see him at a small club in Santa Monica called McCabe's um, probably in the early nineties, just by himself. That's the last time I saw him. And uh, he was still real funny. A lot of people don't realize, I think how funny and what a great sense of humor Gil Scott uh, Heron had also. Oh, he's a comedian. He was, oh, he's a comedian. I mean, Gil, Gil said to me, I remember over the time and so many stuff and conversations and all kind of stuff, whatever. Gil is a comedian, yeah, because in between there, he's telling jokes and stuff. You got to be kind of intelligent, but he's telling 
jokes and stuff, whatever, all the time, you know? Yeah. Sometimes he's mad about it. And sometimes he's really joking about it. Because, you know, we don't like people. He's one thing is he kind of turns them into jokes. You know what I mean? With his, um, you know, his words and everything. With what he did with, what he did yeah. with uh, Reagan, I would have loved to have seen what he could have done with Trump. It's too bad he didn't get a chance at that. Well, it would be just like that. It would be the same thing how it was with B-Movie or We Don't Need No Rerun. It would just be with those words, you know, whatever the new words would be. Because, I mean, that's just how Gil was. He could do that how nobody else could do it. But I, I haven't met Brian. I've been around Brian before. I have. And he's cool. Yeah, I met Brian, I don't know, several years ago for the first time. I never met the the conglomerate. Met this one, worked for this one. Then met that one. I never I never saw the uncut visual version live. You know what I mean? But yeah. you can hear you can hear it in, in um in Brian. You can hear that, that that you know, that was part of the sound. The rose, whatever, that was part of the sound. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I like the I like the thing that I saw as well. I think I saw him. Well, here where I see all the cool stuff on the Truth and River, I just saw it <laughs> one day off of the accident, or whatever. And I was like, "What is this?" Or whatever. And I was like, "Wow." Yeah, yeah, he did a great job on that. Um, if you haven't seen that show, check it out. So you uh, ended up having this hit. Let's go back to the Von Mason uh, thing. How did you feel when that song was successful? I mean, what was that like for you and how did it change your life? Are you talking about which song? You can do it? Yeah. It changed, in, in, well, it did everything at once, if you understand that, because the uh, that I had written, I'd done other stuff in the studio, I had other songs, but I'm saying that one that's gotten to an artist, a label, and it's gonna come out and you go to the studio and record it. So it was everything. It was like first time the studio, other than the studio I was going into, the addicts. Studio in the addicts. Um that's what really that's where it really started from. Okay. This guy John Freeman, John C. Freeman wrote, I just don't want to be lonely for the main ingredient. So he was that that writer, him and Vinnie Barrett. He had started a studio type of concept in DC called the Addict. You know, always face to face. The word Johnson. That's when I met Vaughn Mason. Being in this one studio, which was the hot spot in DC. Okay. So being there. Had everything to do with it, and then being around John, because my father was the one who could write everything on the paper and everything, and I was, I had forgotten how to um, read music. It had been so long since so I played the clarinet, you know. That might sound really strange, but I had forgotten because I mean that's how much playing that clarinet that I really didn't like doing for eight years, but I was teach myself, play groove on whatever. My grandma used to call it playing by ear. I said, yep. So um, John showed me that you can actually compose a song without having to write it down on paper. 
my father was one that he would get a tissue uh, in a restaurant or something and just kind of like, I didn't really know who he was, but I know he knew who he was. I mean, I could break it down. I can't say I couldn't get there and figure it out, but I'm saying he was that way of his composition. And John showed me comp composing a song is no more than just doing it and recording it. And that you have composed something. Maybe it's not the, the complete, but you composed something. And that's how I was writing all of my songs. They were giving me downtime in the studio when I wasn't doing anything. Because he, I guess he sort of believed in me, whatever, or, or whatever. And it was and it was Jerome Bell, him and Jerome Bell. Jerome Bell was the lead singer for Vaughn Mason, Bounce Rock, Skate Road. He was that voice. Mm -hmm. so, being with him and John, they was friends. They were all involved in writing, you can do it. But their involvements were lyrical and vocal. I had done that entire music track myself. Drums, bass, keyboard, and another guy named Kevin played the guitar never for me. To get to the level anyway that um, to uh, Rick James people. Of course, when it's recorded, everyone does their little sort of thing to it, but I had got it to that version to the, that it was interested. So um, that's how John impacted me told me that you can actually compose music. How, how long did you work on that? You can do it? Yeah, how, how long did you work on it? Um, well, you know, you, you, get, you, get, you get your downtime or whatever, right? And basically, sometimes you get four or five hours, sometimes you don't, but it probably took about two sessions, a good, a good two sessions for me to get it that way, okay? So that was probably about two, seven hour, sessions or six hour sessions because i'll get the downtime at like you know 12 o'clock or one o'clock and i could push through sometimes about six o'clock so i'd probably get a couple of those that did it to get that interest yeah well i'll tell you wide receiver and one nation those are pretty good uh inspirations so that's those are songs that i liked i went on the things that i liked that moved to me so of course one nation would move me because i was you know I, I was already in in that but then on the outside of that, which I thought was just about as funky at that moment in time, was that wide receiver. I thought that was comparable to P-Funk. Totally P-Funk influenced. So therefore, bang, I like that. So I said, hmm, I just tried, I just tried the thing with You know, and that started that. I had done other songs with Vaughn Mason as well. There's a song called... Um, but Butch and Robin, Don't Make Me Wait. That's on like a German label, ZYX. I played the keyboards on there. And there's been a couple other tunes before or after that you could do it. But yeah, I felt really good. And um, first record you do and get, get in a billboard magazine. My uncle used to say, if you get into a billboard magazine, then I know you're doing something. So it got onto a billboard magazine, number 40 in the R&B thing. So I was like, and, and you got some, royalty money as well from the airplay or whatever but it wasn't no massive hit but yep so i was like make actually make some money you know which, yeah made made a little bit of money and and had this breakthrough whatever so people took me more serious i guess after that point 